Shabbat Shalom, everybody. Good to be back. Was in Washington, D.C. last weekend, five days in the jungle. So um, I'm sure my teaching is going to be peppered with some crazy stuff because I was walking around that city. Actually, I went to the Bible Museum, new Bible Museum that's opened in Washington, D.C. about seven months ago. I was kind of excited to go down there. And then when I went down there, I left so discouraged because... um, There was just all all of these people walking around just in awe of the Christian heritage of Washington, D.C. And I I was just astounded as I'm walking around looking and seeing and experiencing. I'm ending up with a whole different idea of what the heritage of this nation is. Um, And it's deeply rooted, as we know, in the occult. So... As we go in now to Ezekiel, scroll 2, part 4, which begins in Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 3. We have the destruction, the impending destruction of Jerusalem. And of course, we understand that the armies of Nebuchadnezzar, Babylon, are coming down on the city. This is a book, this is a scroll, we're in the second scroll here, and it was written thousands of years ago. And I don't mean to be melodramatic or anything, but as I was walking around Washington, D.C., and the political um, animosity that is going on in this nation, where everybody is against everybody else, and it is very rampant in D.C., You see it everywhere, just with people on the streets, the placards, the opposition, this group and this group, and I'm for this public figure, and I'm against this one. It's just, I mean, you can't even go to a restaurant without somebody being asked to leave. And we saw that last week in the Red Hen Cafe in Virginia, I believe it was, which was, you know, just outside of D.C. It's just like, oh my goodness, we are a nation in crisis. So as I look at this and go through the scrolls, I see such similarities that the prophet is not only speaking to people from thousands of years ago, but the prophetic word of Yahuwah reaches into our very days today. Ezekiel chapter 22, in verse 3, it says, Then say this, says the master Yahuwah, The city sheds dam, blood, in the midst of it, that her time may come and makes idols inside herself to defile herself. What does the city do? The city makes idols within herself to defile herself. And as I come off of the airplane back from Washington, D.C., I'm walking around the city like I told you. I'm in prayer. I'm reading my Bible. I go to the Bible University. I'm trying to fill my, th- my mind, my thoughts on the righteousness of Yahuwah in the midst of so much else that I see all around me. And I see lemmings, no offense, going to the Bible Museum all in, enthralled in the Christian heritage. And I'm I feel like, wake up, people. Do you not see the occult architecture? Do you not see what's happening to our nation, right? But no, it's all all so milk and easy. But to me, I become transfixed 
on this chapter, as I know I'm about to bring it forth in, I hope, revelation and prophetic insight today, I'm transfixed in the word of Yah, but I'm looking at it through the eyes of the prophet from 2,000 years ago, and I have this struggle with the today, and then the yesterday, and then the future. And it's all coming together by prayer and the Ruach of Yahuwah. And the power of the word, to me, in a city like that becomes so raw, so you can smell it, you can taste it, you can sense it, that I see that the prophet Ezekiel, he has a timely message for this nation today. Not just the nation of Judah and Jerusalem from yesteryear, but today. Because when a nation, listen, verse 23, when a nation, a city, has idols inside of herself, it means that the occult is central to its very precepts of government and administration. And when it comes to that point, when it's inside of itself, it's actually beyond redemption and awaits judgment. I believe that the nation that we are in exile in is beyond redemption and is literally circling the drain, awaiting judgment. And I know some would say, oh, well, where's your faith? I see the writing on the wall like Daniel saw the writing on the wall. And I literally saw it carved into the architecture all around Washington, D.C. as people are literally drinking the milk of the Bible Museum and what they're propagandering you that D.C. is really about. But it's not. We live in such a nation. A nation that is full of idolatry, that is centralized on the occult, not just upon the fringes of society, but is centralized in the houses and corridors of power, the occult. Our capital, it houses an iron cross, the one used by Hitler, the Star of David, used by the Rothschilds, an upside-down satanic pentagram pointing to the White House, a pyramid with a huge owl, sitting atop the Capitol building, the Egyptian hieroglyph for the Illuminati goddess, Isis or Cyrus with a star, an oval, and an obelisk, all drawn together. You can see it right there. Yes, the city that we see, that I saw last weekend, is Mystery Babylon. And it makes idols inside of herself to defile herself just as Ezekiel proclaimed. He exclaimed it to the nation then, and we see it today within our very midst. Turn with me to verse 4 of Ezekiel chapter 22. To turn my sounds off too. You are become guilty in your dam, in your blood, that you have shed, and you have defiled yourselves in your idols which you have made, and you have caused your days to draw nigh, and you are come even to the end of your years. Therefore, what? 
Therefore, I have made you a reproach. Listen to that word. Very, very important. I have made you a reproach to the Gentiles and a mocking to all countries. You have come even to the end of your years. Meaning, you've reached the limit of your years. We have seen it with the Roman Empire. We have seen it with the Persians. We have seen it with the Greeks. At some point, an empire comes to the end of its years. First off, I think this verse would be a really good read at those funerals where, you know, the person, you know they were an unrepentant sinner, right? But everyone's talking about them as if they were like sitting in the clouds with cherubs. And you're like, I know they were an unrepentant sinner. Because, no, the Bible here teaches that even a believer, if a person's sins cause his life to be shortened, that he will be held liable, not only for the sins that he committed himself, but also for the years of his life that were lost, that were shortened due to sin, because sin brings forth death. So he's not only going to be held accountable for the sin in his life, but he's going to be held accountable for the years of his life that were lost because of the result of sin. Because if he had lived longer, and if he had lived a better life, he could have worked goodness and justice, and even perhaps brought forth righteous children into the world, right? That will all be now credited against him. Secondly, it says, are you come even to the end of your years? Meaning you've reached the limit of your years. Moshe, back in the Torah, he alluded to the number of years the nation would be allowed, listen, allowed to remain in the land before the exile. So Moses, even back in the Torah, he alluded to that the nation of Israel would only be allowed to remain in the land for a certain amount of time because Yahuwah knew that he would hold them accountable for their sins. He knew that their life in the land would be shortened because of the consequences of their sins. A death, meaning an exile to Assyria and Babylon. And he knew that based upon Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 25 in which the Hebrew in that text actually says when you will have a long been in the land and the Hebrew in that text this is amazing to me it has the numerical value for that phrase is 852 so bear with me the numerical value for the for the Hebrew phrase that is found in Deuteronomy 4 verse 25. When you will have been long in the land is 852. And that's stunning to me, those of you that know the history of Israel. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 4 verse 26, it says thus. 
I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day that ye shall soon utterly perish from off the land whereunto ye go over the Jordan to possess it. Ye shall not prolong your days upon it, but shall utterly be destroyed. Meaning, because of your sin, your life will be shortened in the land. Death will come, you'll go into exile. And the numerical value of the phrase that we find is 852. Moses alludes to it thousands of years before the prophet Ezekiel speaks this forth. Because the nation, this is just, the nation would perish from the land in 852 years. That's what it's saying. Solomon built the temple. 440 years after Israel entered into the land. And how long did the temple stand for? 410 years. That's for a total of 850 years. But Yahuwah, in his mercy, he exiled the Jews two years before the prophetic deadline so there would not be a total annihilation, genocide, and decimation of the people. And that a remnant would be saved. You and I look around us and we see decimation, not only of believers. We see decimation in the nations. Yet, here we are today in our midst and look at the remnant. Look at us. We're still here. We've still got the hand to the plow. And he's gathering and gathering and gathering. I choose to stay at the top of the cup where, guess what? I have the opportunity of overflowing blessings. Or you can choose to circle the dregs at the bottom where all the tea leaves are, the witchcraft and the occult. My grandmother used to read tea leaves, by the way. Of course, they did that back in the 20s in England. Witchcraft, occult. Remember, as a little boy, nonsense. You want to circle the drain? Or do you want to be at the top of the cup with the lips of royalty to overflow blessing? It's all right here in your outlook, perspective, and what you see. Be careful who you associate yourselves with. You're either going to have golden connections in your life, Or you'll have connections to the dregs. You've got to make wise decisions with the time that you have. I choose to surround myself with kingdom precepts and prophetic visions so that we can continue this great work. This is amazing to me. Yahweh's mercy is upon us. We are the remnant. And he said... 852 years, but 850 years, two years before the judgment of total decimation, Yahuwah exiled them so that a remnant would be spared in his mercy. And Yahuwah is calling out a remnant today in the midst of a nation doomed for judgment. We're in the midst of a nation doomed for judgment. You and I have been blessed with an early wake-up call. I am so blessed that we have an early wake-up call. In America today, though, it's become a reproach to the nations, hasn't it? The country that I grew up in, Great Britain, it's no longer great. 
no longer great. The world is changing. Why is America a reproach amongst the nations? Anybody? Why do you think? Division. Division? Give me another reason. Why? Why are we a reproach amongst the nations? Huh? Fallen away from their first love? We claim one thing but act in another? Lack of identity? People aren't yearning for the Creator. They didn't even yearn for the Creator to begin with. These are all true. These are all true. But what I see is our foreign policy and our wars of attrition. The nations are sick of our foreign policy and our wars of attrition. Think about it. I mean, I was at the Pentagon last weekend. Walking past the Pentagon, so excuse me as, a, as I teach the word, and, and it might be a little political, and it might, be, it might be rooted in my experience in D.C., but I will connect it back to the words of the prophet Jeremiah, but I truly have to believe, because I'm a man of faith, that where I travel and the things that I do, that Yahweh has ordained my footsteps, because I have visions and I immerse myself in the word wherever I go to guard myself from sin and iniquitous behaviors in my thoughts, action, words, and deeds. I've always done that ever since I got saved. This has been the living word, salvation, through Yahushua. Literally, by immersing myself in the word, instead of going out partying, I'd be reading the word. Instead of doing this, I'd be reading the word. And when I'm tempted to do it, or when I'm by myself, when I'm in a hotel room, I make sure that the television's off. I never put a TV on in a hotel room. You're just asking for trouble. And I've always got the word with me. And that is the way that I choose to live. So excuse me, sometimes as I'm walking around in these cities, especially Washington, D.C., I'm layering it upon my Bible worldview. That's how I choose to live. I believe that's how the majority of you choose to live. And that's what we have that unites us as brothers, as sisters. But our foreign policy is why we're a reproach to the nations. But Jerusalem had become a reproach to the nations that it was brought down, the Assyrians, the Egyptians, and finally the Babylonians. The premise for us, of for why we even invaded and occupied Iraq, was what? Weapons of mass destruction. And because of that false premise, we have become a reproach to the nations, even more so in the past 17 years. That premise was proven to be false. The United Nations former Secretary General Kofi Annan said that the invasion was not sanctioned. Listen, that invasion of Iraq, it wasn't sanctioned by the UN Security Council. And it wasn't in accordance with the UN's founding charter. In fact, the chief weapons inspector in Iraq concluded that President Saddam Hussein had no such weapons or means even to produce them. And that the U.S. intelligence community, in fact, had determined that there was no meaningful connection between Al-Qaeda and Iraq. I've always wondered about that. 
But there was no meaningful connection between Al-Qaeda and Iraq. So Iraq was invaded. Why? Why was it invaded? Because it had a state-owned oil company that was in competition with the Wall Street bankers and the oil companies. That's why. That's why. And Saddam Hussein, why was he executed? Why did they hang him? Not because of the atrocities that were committed during the war between Iraq and Iran. No. Nor any of the other atrocities that he committed. He was executed simply for standing up to Wall Street and for standing up to the forces that are really ruling this world that you and I live in. The forces of money and power the globalists. The same reason that Gaddafi was executed, standing up against the globalists, the forces of money and power. And I saw it all around me in Washington, D.C., just dripping with it. But now we find ourselves again, still in the flux of Afghanistan. I'm a, I love to read history. I love to read about Afghanistan. One of my favorite pictures is called The Remnants of an Army. I have it at home. It, I, it's so it's always touched me because the story that's behind it. Because if we had known and if we had learned from the history of the British in Afghanistan for the past 300 years, we would never have gone there. The Russians and the British have been in Afghanistan since the 1600s. So why are we even there? What was the premise used for invading Afghanistan? <laughs> We've all heard it before. 19 men using box cutters directed by a man on dialysis hiding in some bat cave in the middle of Afghanistan managed to fly unmolested for over an hour in the most heavily guarded airspace in the world, knocking down three buildings with two planes. I mean, how is that even possible? But people believe it. They believe it. And as I walk past the Pentagon... I'm looking, and I'm looking at the topography of the, of the area, and I'm supposed to believe that a pilot who couldn't even handle a single-engine Cessna-engined airplane was able to fly a commercial jet in a descending 8,000-foot corkscrew, 270-degree corkscrew turn, coming exactly level with the ground, hitting the Pentagon in the budget analysis office where DOD staffers working there were looking for the missing $2.3 trillion that Defense Minister Donald Rumsfeld had just announced missing the day before. Really? Look at the topography. There's no way. And people are literally believing that. And they're there weeping over these occult monuments that they've constructed. This has all been proven to be unlawful and false, but nobody believes it because of the mass of propaganda. The invasion of Afghanistan, again, wasn't even authorized by the UN Security Council. Bin Laden himself denied that he had anything to do with the attacks. And the Taliban officials repeatedly said that he could not have been involved in masterminding the attacks from his bat cave in the middle of Afghanistan with a 1990s phone and a 1990s laptop while he was on dialysis. 
Really? We're supposed to believe this, though. The Bush administration, in reality, refused to provide any evidence of bin Laden's responsibility to the Taliban. Therefore, he made it impossible for the Taliban to hand over Osama bin Laden. They were bound by Islamic law. They could not hand over a Muslim to an infidel without evidence. If they had produced evidence, if the Bush administration had produced evidence, the Taliban, they said they would have handed over Osama bin Laden. But they could not hand over Osama bin Laden without evidence because it is against Islamic law. We're not told that. They were willing. And I'm not supporting the Taliban. Don't spin that because people online will. They love to take my words and twist it. But no, that's not what I'm saying. But Muslim, Islamic law says that a Muslim cannot be handed over to an infidel without evidence. You cannot do that. So they were bound. They, they couldn't break their own laws. And even though we had that, remember that dubious video of Osama bin Laden where he actually says that he, I mean, come on, really? A dubious video, which was purported to be a summer, does not equate to evidence in any international court of law, does it? Nor do absurd stories about passports flying through the air and landing unburnt amongst the rubble of 9-11. That's impossible, but people believe it. So why did we invade Afghanistan? Well, read a book called The Great Game. Same reason that the British and the Russians did for the past 300 years during that period called The Great Game. It's strategic, geographical position and it's later known material, mineral wealth. What am I talking about? The reason that we're still there now? Unicol's proposed pipeline which would transport oil and natural gas from the Caspian Sea region to the Indian Ocean through Afghanistan and Pakistan. That's why, that's what the lobbyists are working on in D.C. It's all about the globalist expansion. That's why we're there. This is why we are despised by the nations. And that was a long roundabout story to get us back to our text because... Judah had become the same way. They had become despised by the surrounding nations because of their foreign policy and because their iniquity was in their very, very midst. I find the comparisons astounding. Look at verse 10, because now verse 10 on describes moral bankruptcy, the rooting decay of the family and human sexuality. The waterline marking the utter moral decline that can only bring about Yahuwah's judgment to the nation. Look at verse 10. And now look at verse 13. It says, See therefore, I have smitten my hand at your dishonest gain that you have made, and at your blood which has been shed in the very midst of you. Look at that. The blood that has been shed in the very midst of you. Here, Ezekiel lists 24 sins which embody a nation that is in a death spiral. 
There's 24 sins that embody a nation that is in a death spiral. Now, the one to take note of is verse 13, where robbery seals the decree of judgment. It's robbery that seals a nation's decree of judgment. And what do we have in the nation that we find? Since 1910, no other nation in the history of the world has succumbed to such clandestine and grievous robbery as the robbery afflicted upon the citizens of these United States. As I walked past the Federal Reserve last weekend and I'm reading this text, it all becomes so clear to me so clear to me. This robbery, this robbery has been the modus operandi for the four horsemen of the Federal Reserve. As I'm walking past the Federal Reserve and I'm thinking, this is the four horsemen. Not literally, but symbolically. We've got the Bank of America, J.P. Morgan Chase, Citigroup, and Wells Fargo, the four horsemen of the Federal Reserve, who own the four horsemen of oil. Exxon, Mobil, Royal Dutch Shell, BP Amoco, and Chevron Texaco. That's your globalism right there. All connected. And it's right there before me. And I'm walking along and people are stuffing themselves full of pig sandwiches and ketchup splattering everywhere. And I'm looking and thinking these things and I'm like, I am a stranger in a strange land. A stranger in a... I'm walking along thinking of the four apocalyptic horsemen of the Federal Reserve, <laughs> oil and gas, finance, and seeing this spiral of destruction because robbery is the final deed that, su that consumes a nation in that death spiral. And basically in 2008, we all know it was the first wave of when that death spiral ensued our nation with the economic collapse. But now we find ourselves really, if you're awake, we're just in a state of flux. We're just in a state of flux because our economy and our society is just circling the drain. It's just circling the drain before the inevitable judgment as in the days of yore when robbery marks the final flood down the sinkhole. What does robbery do? Robbery marks the final flood the hastening down the sinkhole to destruction. Genesis chapter 6 verse 13. And Yahuwah said unto Noah, The end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with robbery. The Hebrew word there, the earth is filled with Hamas. The earth is filled with Hamas through them, and behold, I will destroy them with the earth. So a nation's final destruction is marked when the robbery of the nation comes from the occult hierarchy of its administration within itself, the field of blood. And then we find now that that destruction, that robbery, is actually connected to the Hebrew word Hamas, which we know today that Hamas is a tool used by the globalists to cause the destruction of the nations by what? Mass immigration 
Islamic destabilization to the nations. And we're seeing it everywhere. We're seeing it everywhere. Tamar. So right now, as we look in the text, go back to verse 17, we can see now through verse 17 all the way through verse 22. Ezekiel now is going to begin to employ the smelting process as a parable for the devastation of Jerusalem. The smelting process. Because Think about it. Israel, when they left Egypt, what did they leave Egypt as? They left Egypt as silver. But the smelting process of the wilderness and the land made them less pure and they became as impure as dross circling the sinkhole. What has Yahushua made us? He is, and you know, you're a gemologist. A goldsmith, sorry. We have a goldsmith in our midst. What, is, what did Yahushua save us as? We were redeemed by the currency of redemption, which is silver, and we are refined as silver. And silver, you'll tell me, is one of the hardest metals to purify, is it not? One of the hardest metals to purify. But the smelting process, the smelting process has actually obviously made some less pure. I see it in the way they're thinking. It takes a hotter flame to purify silver. A much hotter flame. A much hotter flame. You've got to be able to withstand these flames that come upon you. But many aren't. They become like dross in their thoughts, in their words, in their actions, and in their deeds. Silver is the most difficult metal to purify. And guess what? The suffering of the smelting, it's going to have to last longer because it's going to be hotter because the purification of silver, it just takes longer. Now, now there is some silver waiting to be salvaged from amongst these base metals. But only fierce fires will receive it. Some of you are silver that is refined from parts of other silver. But then some of us are being refined from base metals. I'm being refined from base metals. Therefore, the fire in my life is a lot hotter than most. Because I didn't grow up in a believing household. I'm being refined from a base metal. I've had to overcome a lot. And if you don't like me now, man, if you'd have seen me 25 years ago, you'd think that I'm a walking miracle. Because I really am. Because I came from a base metal. I didn't even know a word about Yahweh except what was taught by the, the Anglican church, which we know is a bunch of mixture, right? But because I come from a base metal, if I'm going to be refined as, as pure as silver, 
then I'm going to have to understand that my life is going to be a life where the fire is turned up hot. And there's one thing that I can do. I've been trained since I was a little boy. That's to be resilient and to endure. But I know it's part of my life and I've seen the results. So when the fires come and I'm still standing, it's because the Father has shown me and shown you that some of us have come from base metals. Some of you are blessed that you don't have to have quite as much heat as we do. Because you were raised in Christian schools, in Christian colleges, with Christian parents, and you had biblical roots. But I didn't. I didn't. So be patient with me as you see me being torched. Be patient with him as you see him and him being torched. Because I identify with the brothers that are under the extreme flame. Because we always have a kinship. I meet people from all over. But it's usually the rougher ones that I identify with a lot quicker. Because they're base metal men. And I understand that they are going through the trials. Because they've got more to overcome. And those of you that are more refined then that's an honor and a privilege. And we look to you for prayer. We look to you for support. We need your support, don't we, brothers? We need your support. Just help us. We're imperfect. We're impure. And we're going through the fires. But the Father has plans for us. He has plans for his people just to endure. Just to endure. That wasn't in the sermon, by the way. That was just... Uh, yeah. Verse 25. But there is a conspiracy of her prophets in the midst of her, like a roaring lion seeking the prey. They have devoured beings. They have taken the treasures, the precious things. They have made many widows in the midst of her. Now, how can you detect in your culture if it's been overcome by the voice of false prophets? How do you even know if your culture's been overcome by the voice of false prophets? Because false prophets, they prophesy in virtually, in virtually the same words, proving that they're false because it shows that they collaborated in composing their messages. That's how you know they're false. Oh, their messages are similar, but their message's origin wasn't from the Spirit. It was from collaboration. There's a big difference, and you can tell. I can tell. I mean, I've re revisited some old sermons and some teachings from Calvary Chapel. I've even revisited some Hebrew roots and some um, different kind of uh, messianic messages over the past um, few days. And uh, nothing's changed. Nothing's changed in the years since I've left them. There's no warning that they're giving. There's no end time revelation that they're bringing forth. In each stream of religion and doctrine, the pastors, the teachers, the messages are one and the same. It's a collaboration. It's a collaboration. And that collaboration to me, it bears witness to their fallacious nature. It bears witness to their fallacious nature. 
Because a collaboration of verses, a collaboration of information, that doesn't make a teaching. And that doesn't make a teacher. Be careful what you accept as truth. Because usually you'll find lies, truth, and a lot of spin. A collaboration of lies, truth, and a lot of spin. And to the undiscerning, and to the wounded, they'll gravitate to the sinkhole. But we have to endure through these times. Because like lions who roar, the false prophets shout out their false messages, which will inevitably lead to the deaths of the gullible people that will listen to them. And it saddens me that a minority are content to listen. And it saddens me that a minority still do listen. But there's little that you can do but continue to go forth. Look at verse 26. Her priests have violated my Torah. They have profaned my holy things. They have not put no difference between the kadosh, the holy, and the profane. Neither have they shown any difference between the unclean and the clean. And they have hid their eyes from my Sabbaths. And I am profaned among them. Her leaders in the midst of it, they are like wolves, seeking the prey to shed down blood and to destroy beings. Why? Because they want to get dishonest gain. And their prophets, they have coated their evil with whitewash, seeing vanity and divining lies to them, saying, This says the Master Yahweh. But Yahweh has not spoken. Be careful when you say that. This says the Master Yahweh, but Yahweh hasn't spoken. We cannot remain silent in the face of sin, brethren. We cannot remain silent in the face of sin. But we can't take someone's opinion and make it our burden either. Opinion does not define sin. Torah, the violation of it, defines sin. Did you steal someone's wallet? Did you murder someone? Did you kidnap someone? Let's define it by the Bible, not by opinion, because your opinion becomes somebody else's burden. It's not what you think, you feel, or you imagine. Where's the facts? Did you steal a wallet? You're a thief. You violated this Torah commandment. It's a sin. Did you kidnap someone? You violated this Torah commandment. It's a sin. But imaginations and opinions is not sin. It is my opinion that your skirt is too short. That is sinful to come into the sanctuary like that. My opinion just became the poor sister's burden. That's not righteous. But you whitewash it with Bible verses and pretend to fay righteousness. But it's not clear cut. It's not defined. It is a wicked imagination. 
Verse 1 of chapter 23. The word of Yahweh came to me again saying, Son of man, there were two women, the daughters of one Imar, mother, and they committed whoring in Egypt. They committed whoring in their youth. There were their breasts pressed and their virgin nipples were squeezed. And their name, who would have ever thought I would have been talking about squeezing nipples in a congregation? It's amazing the liberty that the Father gives you, isn't it? Wow. Anyway, be, be that as it may. Let me repeat that verse just because I can. They committed whoring in their youth, that their breasts were pressed, and that their virgin nipples, yes, you heard me, their virgin nipples were squeezed. And their names were Ochalah the elder and Olichibah her sister. And they were mine, and they bore sons and daughters. These were two sisters. We know that these sisters from the Bible were Ephraim and Judah. But both of the names actually come from the Hebrew word Ochel. Ochel means tent or tabernacle. Judah is called what? Ocholipa. Ochleba. My tent is within her. Because why? Because the tent or the tabernacle, the temple, was within Jerusalem. That is why she is called that name. Yet Egypt, where they were enslaved, lay dormant like cancer that had been in remission. But now Egypt flares up like a dormant cancer. The northern kingdom is called Ochala, Ochala, her tent. Why is it called Ochala? Because the northern kingdom built their tent, their temple. It wasn't Yahweh's temple. He never wanted a temple up in the northern kingdom. He never wanted two golden calves up there with Jeroboam. No, the two kingdoms were both part of the same parents. Yes, her tent, because its very inception was rooted in rebellion against Yahweh. They always preferred their own tent than Yahweh's tent. Daughters of one mother. What does that mean? Well, the two kingdoms the kingdom of Ephraim and the kingdom of Judah, both were from the same parents, weren't they? From Abraham and Sarah. But they didn't act like their parents, did they? No, not at all. Ochalah is the larger one where the ten tribes were housed. And Ochalah gets her name because she tried to mimic the Ochel, the tabernacle in Shiloh. And what, what follows now in our text is a parable of promiscuity. Look what it says in verse 8. Neither did she leave her whoring that she brought up from Egypt, for in her youth they had lain with her, and they squeezed the breasts of her virginity. So although she learned what the text is saying, although she learned her adulterous practices from the Assyrians, yes, she didn't abandon what she first learned when she was in Egypt. That's where she first learned it. The Egyptians had actually shown Israel affection. They'd enticed Israel with her idols when she was still a virgin. Israel was a virgin in Egypt, and Egypt enticed her with the idols and with all of the whoredoms of the gods of Egypt. Therefore, verse 9, I have delivered her into the hands of her lovers into the hands of the Asherim for whom she lusted. 
They uncovered her nakedness. They took her sons and her daughters. And they killed her with the sword. And she became famous among women. For they had executed their desired judgments upon her. Verse 10. This is talking about the three stages of exile. First of all, of course, the Assyrians exiled the tribes of Gad and Reuben. Then they exiled the other eight tribes. And finally, they killed the children, they killed the soldiers, they killed the king, and they killed his officers. Verse 11, And when her sister, Ochlavia, saw this, she was more corrupt in her perverted love than she, and in her whoring more than her sister in her whoring. She also lusted after the Asherim, her neighbors, captains, and rulers clothed most gorgeously. Horsemen riding upon horses, all of them desirable young men. You see, when the, when the good life of the nations becomes so appealing and more appealing than the holy life of the Bible, then you know you're in trouble. You know you're in trouble. And that's sad to see in people's lives. King Ahaz of Judah, he looted the temple treasury Why? Just to curry favor with Assyria and forge a military alliance. How different, how different are our host nations today in exile? They've looted the citizens of this country. They've looted its citizens' treasury. Why? To curry favor with the globalists and the banksters. It's no different. Why? So they can forge a military alliance and lead us into our next third world war. It's the same thing. We're dealing with the rebel of King Ahaz in the spirit of our leaders, looting the treasury to curry favor with the globalists. That's exactly what's happening. The treasury just happens to be the treasury of its citizens. Your social security, your Medicare, your veterans' benefits. It's all being looted right underneath your noses, right underneath your noses to finance the next wars. This is exactly what King Ahaz did. Someone who was involved in the occult, just like those I experienced last week in D.C. Verse 17. And the Babylonians, they came to her into her bed of love. And they defiled her with their whorings, and she was defiled with them. And her being was alienated from them in disgust. Now, now what happened, according to Second Kings 20 and, uh, and Isaiah chapter 39, after King Hezekiah recovered from an illness? Remember King Hezekiah? He got so sick, but he recovered from that illness, the illness that almost killed him. Well, the historical tale, it goes something like this. Hezekiah, on wanting, listen, Hezekiah, after he recovered from his illness, the illness that nearly killed him, he wanted to impress his Babylonian visitors. So he not only invited them to his dining room table, but he had the queen serve them. Then later, he opened up the temple treasury even opening up the holy ark for their viewing. 
Now, Yahuwah then subsequently sent Isaiah to inform Hezekiah what he did was gravely wrong, and thereby it would actually bring judgment upon his descendants. They would be the slaves to the Babylonian royal household. I'm afraid today, my friends, that we have opened up the temple treasury to Islam. We have opened up the temple treasury and shown the ark, if you will, metaphorically to Saudi Arabia. And now guess what? They're coming to take it all. They're coming to take it all. Look at the real estate in this country. Look at all the big corporations and who's buying them up. We opened up the temple treasury to the Chinese. And guess what? We showed them it. And now they're coming to take it all. And you've got a president who's trying to prevent it. Trying to build a wall. Metaphorically and literally. But we're still circling the drain. We're still circling the drain. But this is all before us. This is nothing new under the sun, as Solomon said. Look at the word. Look at the world. Discern and prepare. Discern and prepare. Isaiah 39, 2 Kings 20. Read it in your own time. There's a lot of text to get through today. I'm pumped. I'm super excited. Are you still with me? Are we okay or shall we shut it down now? Okay, I just want to make sure. I want to make sure we still got zealots in the midst. Okay, we don't want any of that apathy sneaking in here. Okay, so let's move on. Verse 17, and her being was alienated from them in disgust. Alienated from them in disgust. That is coming from the Hebrew word yaka, and it actually refers to a moving away from something, a moving away from something. And we can find it in Genesis chapter 32, verse 26, when Jacob wrestled with the Malak, the angel of Yahuwah, and he gained a blessing, and that brought forth the rising of Israel. And he said, let me go. What does that mean? Move. Move away from my being. Move away from my being. For the day it breaketh. What happens when the day breaks forth? Things that were concealed become revealed. Revelation. This is what we have today. We are part of some great revelation. What was darkened and could not be seen through the 13 prophetic revelation scrolls of Ezekiel is being used for us to see the dawning of the day and the destruction of our nations. If you have ears to hear, I hope you can hear and eyes to see that I hope you can see because the dawning of the day is amongst us right now and Yahuwah has allowed us as a remnant people to use the book of Ezekiel to truly be able to take the next step in our future. Genesis 32 verse 26, Yaka refers to a moving away. And our text is in verse 17, and her being was alienated, a moving away from them in disgust. And he said, I will not let thee go except that you would what? Bless me. Bless me. Now, Judah's affair with Babylon. I hope you can keep track. I'm going back between Ezekiel and Genesis. It's going to Isaiah. 
Uh, yeah, okay, because I can... When it's affecting my dreams, you know that I just maybe need to take a break. <laughs> but you know what? If I wasn't, my mind would be thinking on things it shouldn't be in these fires. And I'm glad for it because it keeps me focused, focused on the work and the tasks ahead. Judah's affair with Babylon ended when her kings, Jehoiakim and Zedekiah, rebelled against Babylonia and she lost her blessing. She became alienated, she struggled and wrestled, but lost the blessing because she was associated with the occult. Instead of the angel of Yahuwah, she had moved into the occult of the nations. And the next verses explain Israel's promiscuity in Egypt. Of course, the underlying cause we all know for her evil inclination towards idolatry is because of those years that she spent in Egypt. And you know what? We can be believers for a long time, but where we spent our youth... That's hard stuff to overcome, isn't it? That's some hard stuff to overcome. Because where we spent our youth, man, if I had only known, if somebody could have just told me, because where I spent my youth, oh, that's where all my evil inclinations come from. All my evil inclinations is from where I spent my youth. And that was years ago. Oh. How I mourn for that lost time. She was so enamored, so enamored with idolatry and the foreign nation's power that she was willing to be the tail and not the head. Israel was supposed to be the head, but she was so enamored with the nation's power that she was willing to be the tail and not the head, welcoming in a secondary status in order to be accepted by them. I refuse to take secondary status to be accepted. And you need to refuse to take secondary status just to be accepted. That's, that, that, that's the spiral sinkhole mentality. That's the settling mentality. Don't settle. You've got one life. I'm in it to win it. I mean, let's do it, right? No compromise. No secondary status. I'm in it to win it. You need to be in it to win it too because a secondary status is a life of compromise. Maybe your job taught you to take that. Take that secondary status. You'll survive. You'll get some retirement. You'll get health insurance. Why would you take years of secondary status when you could have been the head and now you're the tail just for some security, false security? Go out there, build, create, and be a part of something great. Verse 20. In Egypt, she lusted after her lovers, whose flesh is the flesh of donkeys and whose omission is like the omission of horses. I mean, people read all kinds of stuff, you know, magazines and novels and whatnot, trying to get some kind of like excitement in life. But man, you read the Bible. I mean, we're talking about all kinds of crazy stuff within this text. People dying, wars, immorality, compromise, treasuries being looted. I mean, it's amazing if we really just look deeper than just the black fire and look at the white fire, which is where I live, the lines between the text where the revelation is. There's the literal black fire, but the white fire, that's the power of the spirit of revelation. 
I mean, I, so I am, when I study, people often ask me how I study. I spend hours and hours and hours reading the black text again and again and again and again. Become almost like in a meditative um, place that then after it becomes so ingrained in my mind and my spirit that then the meaning, the white text starts to come forth and I just start to write it down. And I start, to, I start to journal. I'm a big journaler. And that's the white fire. And I do it often in the most strange ways. Like I said, walking past the Federal Reserve, going to the Bible Museum, and I'm a, watch, I, I'm a watcher. I observe. I mean, I can sit down for hours. I spend a whole afternoon just like watching people thinking and journaling. With always my little Bible. I won't take this big behemoth with me, you know. But I'll take my little compact one. I have to wear my glasses nowadays, though, to read it. But it fits in my suitcase. And, and it's just amazing. But you've got to spend the time in the black text for the white fire to really come forth. And it takes time. There's no microwave faith, you know. It's crockpot faith. It truly is. It truly is. Verse 24. And they shall judge you according to their own laws. What's that? Well, their laws were way more cruel than mine, Yahweh's saying. They're going to judge you. You'd, I'd much rather be judged by Yahweh's laws than the laws of the nations. Oh, you think, you think, you know, that I was telling my students yesterday, I got a new bunch of students, and I have to go forth um, and I have to give them information about what's called the Clary Act. Now, the Clary Act is something where... Um, there was this young girl whose last name was Clary that enrolled in a, in a, uh, a federal school like mine, and um, she was murdered. And her parents went all the way up to the high court, the Supreme Court, and they petitioned and said, if we had known that this school was in such a dangerous district, we would never have sent our daughter there. We would never have sent our daughter there. So they put an act in Congress called the Clary Act, where now every federally accredited school has to do a um, criminal... Um, they have to get the criminal crime statistics in their area and communicate it before enrollment so that you can decide if this is a safe school. And I had to go through that. And then I also have to go through um, drug and alcohol policy and everything like that. And I said, well, do you want the official line-by-line -line version? i give you that. Or would you like the storytelling version with all the information too? But I'll tell it. And everyone's like, oh, we want the storytelling version. So I pulled up a chair. I had my, And, you know, I'm kind of doing what I'm doing now, but I did it to them. And um, all this to say, what? I have no idea. I've lost my whole train of thought. Where was I? Oh, right, I was at this point. The laws of the nations are far more cruel than the laws of Yahweh. And I was telling my students, I said, talking about drugs and talking about all this immorality that they do. And I said, you know, oh, you think that it's all fun. The culture will accept you. But the culture, you don't realize this yet because you're young. The culture will have you all go along. And it'll accept you. Oh, yes, smoke this. Oh, yes, drink that. Oh, we're all having a good time. But you'll be the one that oversteps the invisible line. Because the culture's got an invisible line. 
And when you do that, it will come down on you way harder than the law of Yahuwah. Way harder. It will despise you and hate you. We just saw it with Roseanne, didn't we? Oh, she's popular. The culture loves her. She's super. But guess what? She, I was just having fun. I'm a comedian. I'm having fun. I'm sharing my ideas. But you overstepped the line. And the moment you do that, the culture's laws are far more severe, far more unmerciful than Yahuwah. Farm, and they don't realize that. Oh, well, we were, all having, we were all having drinks at lunchtime. And we're, yeah, but you overstepped the line. You threw up in public. You can't, you, we can't associate with you anymore. You're an embarrassment. You're a drunkard and a fool. We hate you. No mercy. And you will overstep that invisible line and you will be hated and despised. It's much better and much more merciful to live within these laws. Much better. Yahweh lays out his laws from the beginning. The culture lets you believe that it's got no rules until you overstep that invisible line and then it comes down like a guillotine on you and there's no way back there's no way back for Roseanne there's no way back for you if you overstep the invisible line in the culture and inevitably you will because the culture is trying to entice you to come as close to that invisible line as you can. Oh, no, it's okay. It's okay. Come on, come on. Oh, it's all acceptable. We're all doing it. It's, it's all acceptable. And then you'll just do that one thing that tips you over the edge. And then the guillotine comes down. And your life will never be the same. The only way that the law is good is when it's from Yahuwah. Take it from a man who used to live in the culture and did overstep the line. And I see the mercy of Yahuwah's law and the severity of the law of the nations. And that's exactly what this is talking about. And I shared this. I shared this with my students yesterday. And my compliance officer walked in and she's like, like way oversharing. I'm like, you know, they got all the pertinent federal information and a bit more too. I am what I am. I have stories to tell. It's experience. And if you can save one, even though they're lost, we're all part of the human race. We're all part of the human race. Have compassion, even on the lost. I've learned to be a lot more compassionate on the lost with the job that I now have. I really do. I think back when I was at Calvary Chapel, I was kind of a lot more judgmental on the lost. And now I am actually a lot more merciful because I see their trials and their struggles and I see how the nations and the culture is so hard on them. And they're all right up on that line. And they think they're having a great time, but then I see them step over, step over, step over. They're alienated, ridiculed, and it's all up on Instagram, Facebook, YouTube, and whatnot. And that's the culture. Thank goodness we have a father that is loving and compassionate and merciful. 
He could have waited for 852 years, as the prophecy said. But in 850 years, he exiled them to Babylon because he wanted to save a remnant. And he wants to save you and me too. Verse 25, I am going long, aren't I? But I am just like super pumped. (laughs) And I will set my jealousy against you and they shall deal furiously with you. And they shall take away your nose and your ears and your remnant shall fall by the sword. You see, the Babylonians, this is how they um, they punished the unfaithful wives by mutilating their faces. That's some severity of the law, isn't it? That's what they did. This, of course, is a metaphor for Jerusalem's monarchy and high priesthood. Look at verse 31. Therefore, I have to skip a little bit because I've been oversharing. Therefore, will I give her cup into her hand. This says the master Yahweh. You shall drink of your sister's cup deep and large. You shall be laughed to scorn and had in derision. It contains such judgment. You shall be filled with drunkenness and sorrow, with the cup of astonishment and desolation, with the cup of your sister Shomron. You shall even drink of it and drain it out. And you shall break the sherds of it and tear out your own breasts, for I have spoken it says the master Yahweh. Verse 31 is just as the wine of wrath of Yah that is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. In our days, you need to ready yourselves. We need to ready ourselves for the same as those who fall for the Temple Mount deception today and the worship of the beast. Revelation 14.10 points out their demise. Mystery Babylon, the great, the mother of all harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And in Revelation 17, just as Israel lusted after Babylon's garments of splendor, we find ourselves today in a world where the nations lust after mystery Babylon's garments of splendor. But we're circling the drain. Come out of her. That's what the Father wants. Come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins and partake of her sins. In the cup which she has mixed, mixed double for her. Death, mourning, and famine. Her end, like unto Jerusalem, burning with a fire in that smelting process. The fall of Babylon the Great, Revelation 18, and the U.S. Of A. What a metaphor for Jerusalem. Tear out your own breasts. Jerusalem was supposed to be like a mother to her children in Judah, in Judah, sustaining them with the milk from her breasts, sustaining them with physical and spiritual milk. And as a result of the destruction, Her breasts will be torn off and she'll no longer be able to nurture her children. What a sad, sad demise the prophet Ezekiel brings forth. And verse 35, finishing up to the end of this scroll. Yes, the end of this scroll. Finally, it's been a long scroll, four parts. Depicts how Israel and Judah 
hired and abandoned themselves for lovers, Egypt, Ammon, and Moab, just like a whore, instead of looking to Yahweh for their protection. As we finish up scroll two, we have to understand that we live in a nation that has idols within herself. I was there last week in D.C., and the idols are in the corridors of power. Our nation is not built upon the Bible. It is built upon the occult in the governments of power. It is there. It is apparent, plain to see. And you have to be aware, just as Ezekiel was aware, when a city and nation's idols are within its very midst, that only means that judgment is coming. It's gone too deep within the very inner core that you can no longer expect redemption but judgment. Ezekiel saw this. Jeremiah saw this. The prophets warned this. And the people still did not listen. The United States has, like Jerusalem, become a reproach to the nations. Because of our foreign policies and our wars of attrition. And we find that the final death blow to Judah and to Jerusalem was because of the 13 sins and that sin of robbery. There has been no robbery greater than the robbery of the citizens of these United States since 1910 and the establishment of the Federal Reserve. As I walked right past this ornate building in Washington, D.C., I see that this nation has robbed its citizens for over a century. Over a century. And finally, that robbery, it seals the decree. It seals the decree. And just as silver or dross begins to circle that drain, base metals have to endure fiercer fires. So those of us that didn't grow up as believers, yeah, we're going to have to endure and we will be tested more than most. But Yahweh knows that we will endure so just embrace it and let the fires burn. Because guess what? It gives you a tingling empowering as you walk through the furnace. People will go, well, how, you just don't seem phased. You just don't seem to care. No, it's not that I don't care. It's not that I'm not phased. It's because I know for an assurity that my life has a plan and a purpose and that is not finished with. So I don't let these things bother me because I have been honed since I was 24 through fire way worse than what you're seeing now. This is nothing. If you had seen the fires that the Father put me through in my 20s because of the dross in my life, this is nothing. I came from a lifestyle of addiction, robbery, and immorality. He's done a lot of work, but there's been a Bunsen burner on my backside for years. I mean, that's what you use, a Bunsen burner, right? When you're refining that dross, the ladies are like, I don't know about, I've never heard a pastor talk like that before. But these base metals, man, I tell you what. Wow. 
They rise to the top. They rise to the top. But don't be alienated from one another. Don't let the fires alienate you from one another. Because otherwise you're going to be left to the dregs. And the dregs will group together and circle down the train. Join the priesthood. Not a denomination. That we're all here today gathering. Gathering. And the most important thing for me right now. Is I'll get to see you all. At Sukkot. Because it's only a few months away. And we're going to announce a fabulous location and a fabulous Sukkot to gather in those from the nations here in Oregon in 168 acres of pristine wilderness, a city on a hill, which is our Sukkot 2018. So Catch us tomorrow on Facebook where we'll put up the Sukkot lo location and registration and open it up to the nations. I hope this has been a blessing. I'm, I know that it's been a little, I was a little cray-cray, but hey, that my experience in D.C. is it, always different every single year. This year, it, it, was, it was extremely powerful. I was just by myself and... Um, I was, I was just a lot going on in my life, a lot of fire right now. But man, that drives me to my knees. It drives me to the word. And that gives me some really amazing white fire revelation. So I hope that made sense when I talk about the occult, the Federal Reserve, and all things that we're going on. Questions and comments? Anybody at all? I do have... Um... Yes. Anybody? Here you are. Superb. Or if we have any questions on our online audience, now's the time for questions or comments at all. Yep. It's important for you to know and for us to know that you are ahead in the spirit. And you will receive a lot of opposition because of that. But you will Oh, blessings. Thank you. I mean, it's I, the support that you guys have been here to me these past three or four weeks has been absolutely overwhelming. Tremendous. And then the support from the people online, I can't tell you. So I, I'm looking at the majority of amazing things that are happening and the amazing testimonies through the fire, through the Bunsen burner on my backside. And that's what carries me through because it's the majority of great things because I'm living at the top of the cup and that's where all the blessings are spilling over. And I think that's where we are, that we're all here today on Shabbat here at the local fellowship and that the people then joining in online is amazing. So I hope that the Sukkot announcement tomorrow is just all part of the overpouring of blessings that we can be a part with, a part of. So let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you, Abba. I thank you, Yahuwah, for the prophet Ezekiel. Who would have thought that book that used to be so just overwhelming to me now, Abba, is a companion. A companion, and I hope not to just me, but all to everyone, Abba, that hears this message. That it would be the words of the prophet. A companion to us in these dark and dreary days. 
But Abba, oh, I see such light, such revelation coming forth through the people and the testimonies of those that you have called into this great priesthood of community that you're building. And we just thank you, Abba. We thank you truly in Yahusha's mighty name. Amen. Amen.